When it comes to investing, retirement, and legacy planning, the decisions you make today can greatly impact the quality of life for both you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight, unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your financial future. Good news. You found the Growing Your Wealth radio show with Brian Evans. Brian is the founder of Madrona Financial Services, and with his background as a CPA, he brings a unique perspective to the investment and financial planning world. So get ready for an hour full of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Thank you so much. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to invest better, live better, retire better, and give better. My name's Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions with the words of wisdom and solid advice. Come from Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. How you doing today, Brian? Doing great. Thanks, Jeff. Always glad to hear that, of course, and glad our listeners are with us today. Hope you're doing well today, too. Another great educational show lined up for us today, Brian. We're going to be talking about various income tax rates and sources of gains. I mean, you have one income tax rate on the money that you earn in a job that you get a W-2 for, maybe a different rate if you're a sole proprietor. But what if you sell some assets? Maybe you've got some collectibles, some cars, that sort of thing. So we'll talk about the tax rates on those. We'll also be talking about Roth versus 401k contributions and annuity crediting options. But I want to start off today by talking talking about some important ages that everyone getting into retirement should be cognizant of. Let's start with the first one here, and that is birth to 23. This is a new one for me. Yeah, that's the the kitty tax. And so this is where your child's investment income can be taxed at the parent's highest marginal income tax rate. So let's say that you're you're pretty wealthy and you want to put some money, you know, you're at a really high bracket and you've got some investments that you want to transfer into your child's name so that the income from those investments can be taxed at their lower rate or you want to gift stocks and you know if you sell them you're going to be at the highest marginal rate so you say well I'm going to gift it to my kid and have him sell and he can pay it at his rate oops uh, the kitty taxes no 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 up through age 23 if the kid has more than a very small amount of investment income they're going to pay the tax at the parent's highest marginal rate. So that's something I haven't heard about, the kitty tax. That's interesting news. The next one is for kids age 18 to 21. Yeah, 18 to 21. Uh, another thing, you know, I've, I've, put, I've given money to my kids. I've taken advantage of the gift exclusion annually. Maybe it's 15000 a year, whatever it is. And my grandkids specifically for their college or, or whatever. But if it's a custodial account where you truly gifted it, but you had custody of it, that custodial arrangement ends at some point and 18 or 21 depending on the state and state of washington it's 21 for gifted funds so if you give money to your kid and you say well this is for college and uh, someday or your grandkid this is for college someday or for your down payment on the house and they got money in an account it comes 21 and they want to buy a brand new tesla with it uh, they can do that because you know it's really their money at that point so uh, you might want to consider other ways of gifting perhaps sometimes uh, trusts can work to, to maintain that control past age 21. 
So the next one on our list, Brian, and this is where most people start. They really don't talk about the kitty tax or uh, custodial accounts. The next one on the list is age 50. Why is that important? Yeah, that's where you're eligible to make your catch-up contributions, not the mustard contributions, but the catch-up. <laughs> catch-ups. Yeah, the catch-up contributions where you catch up the amount that you can contribute to your 401k or your IRA. Uh, you can put more in than you could up until that age. And so at age 50, you can kind of supercharge. I know recently, I don't remember off the top of my head, but maybe it was 18000 a couple of years ago for a 401k plan, but 24000 you could put away if you were age 50. All right. And the next age is going to be 55 and 59 and a half. And really those have to do with withdrawing money without a penalty, right? Yeah. If you're age 55 and you have a big 401k plan account balance, say, and you want to start receiving income, monthly income, you can. It's called Section 72T. It's, it allows you to take uh, monthly uh, amounts over a long period of time without being subject to the 10% early withdrawal penalty. So if you take money from your IRA before 59 and a half, usually you have to pay a penalty. This is the one exception to that where you're taking a monthly payment from age 55 on. You're basically turning your 401k plan into a pension by doing that. And so there's rules around that called Section 72T. At age 59 and a half, this is a big one because maybe you've had money in a 401k plan uh, like myself. I've worked here forever and all of my retirement money is in my 401k plan. Well, I'm subject to limitations as to where I can invest it, you know, based upon the plan. Now, at age 59 and a half, I can roll that money over into my own IRA. Now, if I wanted to buy annuities or private non-traded REITs or, or individual stocks or whatever I wanted to do, I could do that. So it allows, at age 59 and a half, people generally like to do this, like to roll their money out of their 401k into their own IRA so they have a plethora of new options for investing. But they continue to participate in their 401k plan as they did before. They're just moving where the bulk of the investments are. And the next one, Brian, is age 62, and it really has to do with Social Security, right? Yeah, at age 62, we can start taking Social Security benefits. Now, if you take them at 62 and you're still making more than, say, 18000 a year, you got to give them back. Uh, you got to start giving them back, some or all of them, uh, depending on how much you make. So be careful about taking Social Security benefits at age 62 if you have earned income, not not unearned, you can have rental income, you can have pension income, other kinds of things, capital gains, no problem. But if you have earned income from uh, a job, a W-2 or Schedule C, then beware if you make more than 18000 And I'm surprised, Brian, at the number of people statistically who have taken Social Security at age 62, the first age they're eligible for it. But as you said, there is an earnings cap. So that's something to really consider if you are still working. But what are some of the other reasons that you could be handicapped if you take uh, Social Security to age 62? Yeah, you give up the raises. That's one thing. And, and that's okay for some people. They say, well, I'd rather have money in my 60s and more money in my 80s. And that's a valid comment. But probably the biggest one is if the higher, if you're married and the higher earning person waited till age 70 to start it and then they passed away before the other spouse, then the other spouse would get their highest benefit for the rest of their life. So it's kind of an insurance policy for the lower earning spouse in case uh, the higher earning spouse passes away first. And then the next one is age 66 to 67. That is a spread of one year. 
Yeah, uh, depending on your age, with the year you were born, that's when you reach something called full retirement age. So for me, it's age 67. If I took Social Security before age 67, I got to give it back because I'm still working. Whereas uh, if I start taking it at age 67, I can make any amount of money. It doesn't matter. I don't have to give any of it back. Okay, so that's your full retirement age between 66 and 67, depending upon when you were born. And to get an idea of when your full retirement age is, simply Google Social Security Retirement Benefits and you'll get the information right there. Next one is age 70. What's important about that? Yeah, with Social Security, if you took it at age 62 uh, or we're thinking about it and you say, what if I wait? Well, for me, if I wait until age 67, I get a 6.5% increase for life for every year I wait up through age 67. If I wait from 67 to 70, I get an 8% raise every year uh, until I start taking Social Security. At age 70, no more raises. If you don't take Social Security then, you're just saying, you know, government, I'd re- you're basically taxing yourself at 100%, basically, because mm-hmm. you're giving up money you cannot get back. You can't get a raise. You can't get anything for it. You're just giving it. You're just giving it up. So if you haven't taken Social Security, do take it by the time you hit 70. And there's some other benefits, too, to taking it at age 70. And that would be spousal benefits. If you had a $2,500 a month benefit at full retirement age, but you were to pass away, your spouse would get that if they get your full Social Security. But if you wait until age 70, they would get that. So it is certainly a decision that needs to be considered carefully as to when you take Social Security. Next one, Brian, is age 72. Age 72 is when you have to take your required minimum distributions. That's uh, where the IRS requires you, if you have retirement account balances, to add up the value of all of them on the first day of the year, 401k, IRA, SEP, Simples, whatever it is, any non-taxed qualified accounts, add them all up and multiply them by a a certain factor, depending on your age. And that's the amount you got to take from your left pocket and put into your right pocket, basically. You take it out of your left pocket, the IRA pocket, and put it into your right pocket, your regular accounts. And on the way from one pocket to the other, the IRS says, aha, I want taxes on that, whatever's Mm -hmm. moving. So they require you to do that. If you don't do it on time, if you're even a day late, then you have a 50% penalty and you still got to do the distribution. So you're basically giving up your money. So do pay attention to that at age 72. Make sure that you're doing your required minimum distribution. So at age 72, when you're going from your left pocket to your right pocket, there's a toll booth in the middle and it is the tax man waiting there to take his cut of the taxes. And if you don't take it, as you said, Oddly enough, 50% penalty, that is rather steep, isn't it, Brian? Yeah, one of my books, uh, Prosperous Revelations, I say, why does Congress hate old people? Because you, know, you can make mistakes on your taxes and make mistakes here and there and over-contribute. There's just, you know, to an IRA that you have to put back and there might be a 6% penalty or whatever. A lot of penalties are 6% or 10%. But the one they held out, the big one, the big hammer, is for somebody very old that forgot to move money from their left pocket to the right pocket. So that seems, it didn't seem uh, very fair to me that you would pass, you know, poor Mildred, who's 98 years old and forgot yeah. to do her RMD. Yeah, nail her 50%. Mm-hmm. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I, if I had a, a say about that, I would definitely reduce that penalty. So there's no sympathy for little old Aunt Mildred? There's no sort of an appeal There's process. no grace period. There's not even a day. Okay. If you're a day late, too bad, so sad, Mildred, you're paying 50%. <laughs> well, the tax man cometh. It is important to know these important ages. 
Brian, how do you keep your clients informed of these important ages? Do they have to put these on the calendar themselves or do you have some sort of automatic, you know, reminder system for them? Oh, yeah. No, we take care of that. And that's and that's one of the reasons why people, uh, there's a lot of reasons to hire financial advisors. There's reasons not to hire a financial advisor. You know, if you're if you're really good with your investments and, and you feel comfortable with doing that and you're, you're uh, you know, of an age that, that makes that work out for you, then great. Uh, then you probably don't need a financial advisor. But if you have tax questions and real estate and estate and trust and all this other stuff, or you're starting to get a little bit older and you don't want to do it, or you don't feel comfortable, it's not really your your lane, though, then maybe you should hire a financial advisor. And that becomes more critical as we age. So certainly my clients who are 72 or older, we know your birth dates. <laughs> trust me, if we have your account, we know your birth dates, your address, everything. And so we uh, make sure every year we look to see who is of that age and needs an RMD. Now, we know what our portion of that is, but it can be an issue sometimes. If I have a client's money and I think I have all their money, but they didn't tell me about their million-dollar IRA account at, at Schwab or something, I'm like, well, I didn't know that. So do know that that if, even if you have money with a financial advisor that says, hey, we've computed your RMD, if you've got assets elsewhere they don't know about, they don't have that in the computation. Make sure they get that. We've been talking about important ages for retirement planning with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. If you have questions about anything that we've spoken about on our show, of course, you can always give us a call, 844-MADRONA, 844-M-A-D-R-O-N-A. And if you have at least $500,000 or more, you're looking to hire a new financial advisor. Once again, we invite you to call 844-MADRONA and get your complimentary, no-cost, no-obligation retirement review. 844-MADRONA or online at madronafinancial.com. And growing your wealth, we'll be right back with more of our show after this. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with your host, Brian Evans. Now, here's Brian. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And this segment, we're going to be talking about the difference between Roth and traditional 401k contributions. And Brian, both Roth 401ks and Roth IRAs are popular tax-advantaged retirement savings accounts that differ in tax treatment, investment options, and employer contributions. Both of these accounts allow your savings to grow tax-free. So let's start at the beginning. Brian, what is the difference between a 401k and a Roth IRA? Yeah. Uh, first, I want to define the Roth because I've been asked this question. I said, what is, you know, there's a lot of acronyms. What does FIUL stand for or PFS or whatever it is? And, and you know, it, it's tons of acronyms from our, our industry. Uh, what does Roth stand for? Well, Roth was actually a congressman. Right. That was his last name. And he was the one that assigned his name to this bill. So that's why it's called the Roth. You know, otherwise, I'd say, well, let's see, retirement or, <laughs> you know, whatever. So uh, uh, that, that's what it is. And, and it was set up designed to help uh, encourage people to invest in, the, you know, for the long haul in retirement investments. And the, the, it had an advantage like everything on our show. And we talk about everything has an advantage and disadvantage. The advantage to contributing to a Roth is that all of the earnings are going to be permanently tax free for the rest of your life. That sounds pretty cool to me. The disadvantage is that you don't get a tax deduction the year you make it, whereas you could have got a tax deduction had you contributed to a traditional 401k instead of a Roth 401k. 
So, Brian, it sounds like there are a lot of advantages to doing a Roth. Why would someone with all these advantages not want to do a Roth? Well, that's the interesting thing about tax planning is that it's different for everybody. I mean, we have this big code. Shouldn't it be pretty clear? They, they, you know, they got their two million words or whatever pages. I don't even know what. But it's 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 long. It's big. And, uh, you know, you would think they would cover everything, but it's different for everybody. So let's say that I was in a tax year where things didn't go so well for me. And I said, well, I want the tax deduction because things didn't go well for me. Well, if your marginal tax bracket is zero or 12% and you put money in a traditional IRA, the refund from the government is zero or 12. Well, I think you'd be a lot better off putting that money into a Roth and foregoing your 0% return in exchange for having it grow tax-free forever. So yeah, in that case, uh, I, I have trouble making a case for a traditional IRA contribution. Conversely, though, let's say you're 60 years old, you plan on retiring in a couple years, and you're in the 35% tax bracket. And you figure in retirement, you're going to be in the 12% tax bracket, and you're going to be needing the money from your account. Well, you might want to contribute to the traditional 401k in this case and get a refund from the government of 35% of what you put in. That's a big refund, as opposed to putting in the Roth where you go, well, yeah, I have it tax-free, but I'm going to invest really conservatively, and I don't really plan on having big gains because I want something really, really – I was going to put it in a CD, and I wasn't going to have gains, just a little bit of interest, and, and they weren't going to be much to speak of. I'd rather have my 35% refund right now and invest that uh, for the long haul. In that case, it's, I have a completely different answer. So I have the same Roth versus traditional contributions that you asked me about, but in one case, I had somebody that's uh, maybe early in their career and doesn't have high income. The other case, somebody late in their career doesn't have a lot of years to grow their Roth tax-free and is already in a high bracket. So the answer is going to be different for everybody. Right. Is this just for the 401k or the IRA? It's for both. It's the same analysis we would apply to both. And part of this analysis is not just age and tax bracket. Part of it is how you're going to invest your money. As I just mentioned, if you're going to put money into Roth and forego the tax refund of a traditional either IRA contribution or a traditional 401k contribution, and you're not going to aggressively invest that money, maybe your gains aren't going to be very high. And so your your advantage of the Roth isn't as high as it could have been. But let me uh, run through another example here. I got an example of this person. Had they been able to do this way back when, because we haven't been able to do this forever, do a Roth 401k contribution. So uh, I knew this guy. He was 25 years old. His name was Brian. Coincidentally? <laughs> Coincidentally. Yes, it was me. And the, the Dow was about 3000 And I did not have the option of a Roth 401k plan. But my tax bracket was very low. I was you know, a new CPA and, mm-hmm. and just kind of working my way up. And uh, let's say that my tax bracket was 12%. Uh, so if I put $1,000 into my 401k plan, I got 120 bucks back from the IRS. And let's say that I put it all into the Dow at that time. And, you know, rolling forward, let's say the Dow is all round way down, 30000 You know, after fees, you know, it went 10x. So my 1000 became 10000 Okay. Well, if it's 10000 in my traditional 401k, I'm going to pay tax on that 10000 And maybe my bracket's 35% now. So I'm going to pay $3,500 in tax. Now, remember how much I saved way back when? 120 bucks. Ooh, 
What if I had put that into a Roth and spent the 120 bucks? I would have saved 3500 down the road. In that case, clearly, I would have been, because I was young in a low bracket and later I was in a high bracket, this is the, the case that is the case for the Roth, and, and I would have been invest, invested aggressively in something that went way up in value, I would be way ahead having done that in a Roth. Unfortunately, I didn't have that option back then. Later on, I did. And so at that time, uh, maybe I put it all under the Roth. Or some people really have trouble. They go, well, I, love, I don't know. I'm kind of a, uh, not sure. I'm, I'm neither one of those examples you gave, you know, because you gave extreme examples, Brian, on that radio. I'm kind of in between. What should I do? I, I can't decide. Well, you could do half in each. You could put half of your uh, IRA money into a traditional uh, or 401k money into a traditional 401k and the other half into the Roth, and then you have two buckets to pull from. You got one bucket in retirement to pull from that's income tax-free, the Roth, and the other bucket that's taxable. If your income's low, you might pull from the taxable bucket and pay at a low marginal rate. If your income's high, you might pull from the Roth and pay no tax on it. We're talking about the 401k versus Roth IRA and what the difference is here on Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Brian, I've heard this other term called Roth conversions. How does that factor into the conversation? Yeah, as I mentioned that the, the, in tax planning, we look at our brackets that we're in and the brackets we think we're going to be in the future. So if you believe, let's say you just retired and you're not going to have any earned income this year and your annuity doesn't start for a couple of years and for whatever reason, your tax bracket is going to be very low. Well, that's a great time to pull money. If you need to pull money from your IRA, Pull it from your taxable IRAs because you're going to pay at a lower rate than you would in another year. Or you might consider doing a Roth conversion, taking some of the money out of your traditional IRA and putting it into a Roth IRA. When you make that transfer, you do pay tax. But again, if you're at a low bracket, a lower bracket today than you think you'll be in the future, it actually makes sense to volunteer tax now at a low bracket. If I know I'm going to pay tax on something, which somebody will, whether it's your IRA accounts or your 401k account, someone's going to pay tax. You or the people inherit the money, your spouse, your kids, whoever. If you believe that that's going to be at a higher bracket in the in the future, you're better off over the long term to pay volunteer some tax now at a lower rate, do Roth conversions, take money from the taxable IRAs when you're in a low taxable income year. Brian, this uh, appears to be sort of a a more high-level complex topic, at least it is to me. Do you find that most people, the average person, really understands the differences between a uh, Roth and a 401k? Well, no, that's why I have a job, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that the point is that's why you really need to consult someone like you who really does know the ins and outs of this. Yeah, I don't know how to build a house, and I don't know how my car runs. I, I thought it still had a uh, what a carburetor. Carburetor. Sure. I didn't know. You told me you, you you had a car show once. You told me it doesn't have one. I mean, okay. Yeah. Modern well, car doesn't, but if you have uh, an old car, it has one of those. I don't even think I have a key anymore. I don't. I don't <laughs> understand right. how any of this works. You push so the button. I don't have to. Uh, it, it runs because I got smart people in my world that yeah, <laughs> make right, sure right. It, it happens. So uh, I don't expect people to come in and know this stuff. This show is not designed for one hundred and one. I mean, this is this is graduate level stuff. And so we cover a lot of stuff, and you know that's the intention of this, is to just kind of hit on a lot of uh, big-picture topics so people can refer back and go, well, I don't know the answer to this. I know some of it. I kind of understand a Roth. I kind of understand marginal tax bracket planning. I, I'm not sure exactly how to do that or whatever. Well, I got CPAs on staff. We, we got people here who can do all of that. 
So the the point is, is that uh, I think people, they come in sometimes, they think they should know what I know. I'm like, well, I don't know your job. What are you, a nuclear scientist mm-hmm. or a teacher or a, or whatever, a contractor? I, I don't know how to do your job. Why, why would I expect you to know mine? And really, in the end, people come in and I just ask them, well, do you, do you think we know what we're talking about? And they're like, well, clearly. And, well, do you, do you think we can help you? Well, clearly, you have lots of great ideas. And do you want to work with us? And, well, yeah, you seem like nice guys. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it. We will do the hard, the heavy lifting from there once you've made that decision. Yeah, when I go to my car mechanic, I don't tell him how to do his job. I let him do his job because he's the expert at that, and you're the expert at this as well, too. If you have questions about a Roth IRA, you want more information about that, or a 401k, simply give the firm a call at Madrona Financial. 844-MADRONA is the number to call. That's 844-M-A-D-R-O-N-A. Or once again, you can find out more at madronafinancial.com. That's uh, also the number and the website for you to request your no-cost, no-obligation financial review. 844-MADRONA or madronafinancial.com. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. We'll take a quick break. Be right back with more after this. If you want to get more information on the Madrona bundle of services, call Madrona Financial Services at 844-MADRONA or go to madronafinancial.com. Now, back to more of Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And in this segment, we'll be talking about various income tax rates from various sources of gains. And Brian, depending upon the source of your income and gains, you might be subject to different tax rates. So, Let's start with the beginning. For those people who are working at a regular job, they get what I call a W-2, which states their wages and how much taxes have been withdrawn from that. Income tax rates, federal income tax rates vary according to how much money you make. Yeah, so the first thing we're looking at is depending on the amount uh, that goes into a particular bucket. So we're going to talk about different buckets, and each bucket has a different tax rate associated with it. Uh, within a bucket, you have different tax rates. So let's say a high income earner, uh, they're going to pay some of their income at zero. They're going to pay some at 10, some at 12%, some at 22, some of it's at 24, some at 32, some at 35, some at 37. You know, it's, and it can keep going up and then they can keep changing these rates. It's been as high as 94% in our history post World War II. And for about 20 years after that, it was 90% was the highest rate. So the rates can vary dramatically, and the dollars that you make, the, people don't really understand this sometimes. They think, well, I'm, I pay all of mine at uh, 24%. Well, no, you don't. You pay it's all these different rates on, on that W-2 amount. So depending on how high that number is, you will have more at a higher bracket. So if I'm understanding you correctly, as you said, not one flat rate, let's say that you make a lot of money, you're not going to pay 37% or something like that on the entire amount of money from, uh, you know, zero. It's a gradual thing. Your first, what, uh, $20,000 or so can be at a very low rate and then it sort of steps up? Yeah, yeah zero because your standard deduction right there, let's say your marriage is 24000 right. So I know the first 24000 is at zero. And so then it can go up from there. And so, yeah, depending on, because uh, a lot of people are surprised when they when they get to the end of the year and they go, oh, I'm getting killed on taxes. How do I reduce my taxes? And I say, well, how much did you make? hundred grand. I'm getting killed. I'm like, well, you're probably, I wouldn't define that as getting killed because you get your standard deduction. Right. Your max rate was 12. Mm-hmm. You had some at zero, some at 10, some at 12. Your average rate was, say, nine. And then we go, nine? Oh, 
Well, that doesn't sound like getting killed. Yeah. Right. No, I, it's it's annoying, but it's nine. It's not <laughs> sure. ninety. So it's like you know they come in, they think they're paying ninety, and I remind you know show them they're paying nine. They're going oh oh I guess I didn't think of it that way. So uh, that's that's something to consider when when uh, looking at your marginal rates. Well, also when it comes to taxes, I mean, you look at the uh, you know social programs that we have and the roads and bridges and all that has to be paid for by somebody somewhere, and it just happens to be you and me. So that's one way to maybe lessen the uh, burden of well, paying those taxes. Well, one comment on that, yeah, I keep hearing over and over and over, uh, rich got to pay their fair share. And uh, owning a CPA firm for 30 years, uh, the rich pay their fair share oh, yeah. on their earnings. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, who doesn't pay uh, taxes, and this is in the code, is uh, people that have large stock holdings, your Elon Musks and your Bill Gates and so forth. If they don't make a sale, if they don't choose to sell their stock in a given year and their, and their value went up $10 billion, you are not taxed on the increase in the value of your holdings unless you choose to sell them. So that would be what we're talking about when not your fair share. I guess that's what they would be referring to. But if it's earned income, they're paying most of it at uh, higher income. People are paying most of that at the highest marginal rates. Because you have these different tax rates, are you able sometimes to maybe move income from one year to another year to pay less taxes? That's that's tough to do on earned income. You really can't. It's called the incitement of income doctrine. You, the IRS code sections disallowing you to have that kind of leeway. But as I mentioned with the, the Musk and the Gates example, they can time their gains from the sale of their appreciated stock. Again, you're you're not taxed on appreciation. You're taxed when you sell it. Same thing with your IRA. You're not taxed as it goes up in value over the years. You're taxed when you actually physically move it out of that IRA, left pocket to your right pocket kind of thing. That's when you – so you choose when you're taxed on that. So a lot of things you do choose when you're taxed, such as you know capital gains and uh, selling real estate and IRA distributions. You, you choose that, uh, but earned income you, you really can't time. Is there an ability to do deferred compensation? And I think a professional athlete who may sign a long-term or a big contract and they take so much the first, I don't know, three or four years, and then it's a back-loaded contract, so they get even amounts for a much longer period of time. There are people that have that option. Most people listening to this, I you know, I don't think I'm going to have any of my uh, CPAs or financial advisors go, yeah, I'd like a 10-year deferred compensation plan. <laughs> Most of them will like to get paid today because sure. they're not making, but an athlete, sure, if, yeah. if they if they're, you know, it's a great example there. If they're going to make $20 million or they can take, you know, $2.5 million for 10 years, I'd rather take 2 and a half for 10 because then I'd spread out my brackets. I'm going to get killed if I'm in the 20, $20 million bracket. That sounds like probably a pretty high bracket. So we're talking about various types of income and the taxes on those. Those are regular wages. As I said, you get a W-2 at the end of the year, which says how much you make and how much in taxes that you paid. Next one is self-employment, which has a whole set of different rules. Yeah, I'm running into this a lot. Well, I started a business and I'm ready to do my taxes. It's uh, I extended my return. I was in business all last year and it's the middle of this year. And uh, made a hundred grand. I put it back into the business and all of that. I'm like, well, I got some bad news for you. First, you got to pay income tax on that hundred grand. Go, oh, really? Uh, but I put it back in the 
in the in you know into you know whatever and you lived on it i'm like well your net profit was 100 grand and you got to pay tax on that oh and in addition you got to pay $15,000 in self-employment and medicare tax times 2 cuz you're both the employer and the employee right. and they go whoa wait a second oh and we're halfway into the new year and you're up 50 grand this year so you got another mm-hmm. 15% on that plus the income tax on that so basically you're starting off 50,000 in the hole I don't have any money. I, I, I spent it. I'm like, yeah, uh, that's you're going to spend the rest of the year working for free because you got to put it all into income taxes. And so uh, it can be a really tough thing for self-employed people. They don't understand about the 15.3% Medicare and Social Security tax. So that's for self-employed people. And as you said, the taxation, you're paying both halves of Social Security and Medicare. All this goes on a Schedule C on the tax form. But that is a conversation for another time there. Self-employed people, though, they really t- it's really kind of tough in, in terms of taxation if you're a sole proprietor. But we have discussed before other business structures, such as an LLC, which may lessen the taxes. Yeah, uh, S-Corp can lessen taxes or LLC, uh, electing S-Corp status if you have proper compensation planning. So talk to your CPA about that. All right. We're talking about the various types of incomes and taxes on that. We talked about wages and self-employment. What about Social Security? A lot of people don't realize Social Security is actually taxed. Yeah, uh, Social Security can be taxed. It can be taxed at 0%. It can be taxed at, uh, if you're in the 12% bracket, it could be taxed at 85% times 12, so roughly 10. Uh, If you're in the 40% bracket, you could be taxed at 85% times 40, which is roughly... 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, so depending on your, your marginal tax bracket, it's going to be taxed at your highest marginal rate, potentially. Uh, it could be, but because it's dependent on your other income, you could ha- include none of it in your taxable income, some of it in your taxable income, or up to 85% of it in your other taxable income. That doesn't mean there's an 85% tax rate on it. It means if you got $10,000 Social Security, you might have up to 8500 of taxable income at your highest marginal tax bracket. So let's go ahead and talk about capital gains now and the taxes on those. Okay, now we got another whole set of rules. It could be at zero. And capital gains, check with your CPA. If your income's not too high and you have a big capital gain you could take in this year, you might find that that capital gain is taxed at zero. There are some weird rules right now about allowing for 0% capital gain rates if you're not, if you don't have a lot of other income. So consider that. Um, that's beyond the scope of this, this show, but there's a zero bracket. It could be 10% bracket, 15% bracket. There's a 20% bracket. 23.8 with a Medicare add-on. There's all kinds of different brackets for capital gains. And of course, you know, depending on when we recorded this show as to what Congress decides to do, those rates could change too. But ordinary income tax rates are distinct from capital gains rates, capital gains being uh, investments you held for at least a year. Brian, there's a show on PBS that I enjoy called Antiques Roadshow, where people have had these collectibles in their family for many, many years. They come to get them appraised, and often they are surprised at how much they are worth. If you have something such as a collectible, maybe a car, piece of artwork, something like that, that is appreciated dramatically, and you sell that, you've realized a tremendous gain probably on that. 
How do you figure the taxation on something like that? Yeah, for whatever reason, they have a special tax bracket, uh, even higher than capital gains. So that bracket can be as high as 28%. I don't know why. I suppose I could research that and figure out why. Why if I sell a rare coin old car, I get nailed more than if I sold an investment that was held long-term for investment purposes. But for whatever reason, uh, maybe because you got some joy out of owning that rare car or artwork or something, maybe that's maybe it's the joy tax that was added. Yeah. <laughs> on top of the capital gains tax. I don't know. But uh, 28% can be your bracket. Now, one thing to remember, though, because I, I just recently got a call from somebody. They said, you know, I inherited this collection. It's uh, gone way up in value. And and I, I know there's a special rate for that. And it's 28. And I'm worried. And I said, well, we need to consider when you inherited it, you got to step up in basis. The fair market value at the date of death is your new cost basis. So that, oh, yeah, yeah. So we had that discussion, and that dramatically reduced the amount of taxation. And I'm also researching, like, if you have coins, you say, gosh, I got these silver and gold coins, say. Uh, they might be at bullion. They might not be collectible. So they might be at bullion prices, which I would contend would not fall under the collectibles category. Brian, I've heard you talk about depreciation recapture on this program. What is that and how does it apply to taxes? Yeah, you think, you know, I I buy a rental house and I get to take this depreciation and every year I get this big deduction on my return and that's awesome. And so you think this is pretty, pretty cool beans. I'm, I'm, you know, working at a job and uh, my marginal rate's 12%. I get 10,000 depreciation a year. So I'm saving 1200 bucks a year. Well, then you sell the thing and you say, Oh, you know that, that 500,000 of depreciation or that, well, let's say in this case, 200,000 of depreciation took all those years. You mm-hmm. know, yeah, yeah. Well, you just sold your property, you had a big gain. So your tax margin brackets high and your depreciation recaptures at 25%. So you got to pay 50,000 back in taxes. You go, wait a second. I only got a 12% benefit on the way getting here. Now I got to pay 25% uh, when I sell it. And I, yep, my tax doubled from my savings from depreciation. So do consider if you're depreciating your real estate, you feel pretty good all the years you're taking those little depreciation deductions, but you're going to pay the piper when you sell it unless you inherit it and get the step up in basis. All right. And finally, Brian, let's talk about the estate tax. I mean, there's a Washington state estate tax or is it a federal tax? How does it work? It could be either or both. And so uh, depending on where you live. And so the estate tax is not a tax on income. Everything else are gains and uh, gains or income. Everything else we talked about was one of those. This is a tax on the value of your assets. If you pass away and the value of your assets are more than about $2.2 million in the state of Washington, you may be subject to the estate tax. Uh, you may leave it to your spouse and, and then it's added into their estate. And if, you know, depending when they pass away, if it's over 2.2, there's an estate tax in the state of Washington. Uh, the federal tax exemption is much higher, but uh, we're one of the few states that have a very, very low exemption relative to the federal amount. And most states have adopted the federal amount. So most states you live in don't have any estate tax if you have an estate under a very high amount. But uh, in the state of Washington, we do. So you, you finally navigated the, the taxes on wages and self-employment tax and Social Security (laughs) at the highest marginal rates and capital gains and gains from your collectibles and all the depreciation recapture, and then you pass away and your heirs get to pay another one. (laughs) Well, that's the one constant in life is going to be taxes, but, you know, look at what we get for that. Facetiously, I say that. Well, the importance of long-term tax planning cannot be understated, and a lot of taxable events are under the control of the taxpayer as to timing. 
So by integrating a long-term plan with seasoned professionals, your chances of retaining more of your earnings can be increased. If you've got questions about taxes, once again, Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs are at your service. To find out more and get your questions answered, call 844-MADRONA, the same number for both firms, 844-MADRONA, or you can find out more online at madronafinancial.com. Time to take a break. Brian, we'll be right back with more of our show after this. Do you ever worry if your CPA and financial advisor are on the same page? You won't have to if you call Madrona Financial Services at 844-MADRONA or visit them at madronafinancial.com. Now, back to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about different annuity crediting options. And Brian, a lot of people know about annuities. We've talked about them on this program many times, but it's important to know about annuity crediting options. So let's uh, start at the beginning. What is a crediting option? Yeah, an annuity, well, we'll kind of back up. There's several kinds of annuities, fixed, fixed index, and variable. And I'm going to concentrate on fixed index today. Uh, variable annuities are more tied to the stock market. So the crediting will be whatever stock market investments that are in there minus uh, fees, annual fees. Uh, the fixed annuity is kind of like a CD. I mean, there's a certain percentage. You might buy a fixed annuity and I'll just throw a number out. Let's say it was 2.5% for five years. Well, they're going to pay you 2.5% for five years. There, I'm done with my segment on fixed annuities. <laughs> uh, fixed index annuities, though, have many various crediting methods. Now, one of the common things of a fixed index annuity is that these crediting methods generally have a floor of zero, meaning if that credit was negative for whatever reason, markets were bad, whatever, uh, the worst case scenario is a zero, which means on the upside, you're not going to get all the stock market returns or anything like that. Depends on the crediting method that you select. So with a fixed index annuity, you're following a particular index. What is the most common index that these fixed index annuities would follow? Well, let's say that uh, you pick the S&P 500 and you go, gosh, uh, sounds, you know, the first time I heard about fixed index annuity, I'm like, wait, it sounds too good to be true. And it, it was based on the information I had because I thought I was being told if the market goes down, you can't lose anything. But if it goes up, you get the S&P 500. I'm like, well, that can't be. <laughs> Otherwise, everybody would do that. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you do that? No, you get the S&P 500 subject to a floor, which is great on the downside, but on the upside, either a cap, a ceiling, or a participation rate. I, okay, that makes sense. So you've taken away the downside, which is benefit to me. What am I giving up on the upside? Well, on the upside, let's say that you you have a cap and your cap was, say, I'll just throw a number out, 5%. Mm-hmm. And uh, if the market went up three, you get three. If it went up 30, you get five because there's a cap. If it went down 30, you get a zero because there's a floor. So that's what a cap is. It's a ceiling on the return. That makes sense. Okay. Let's say you had a participation rate. Same example. And let's say my participation rate was, I'll throw out a number, 30%. And the market went up three. Well, I get a 0.9% increase that year. Let's say it went up 30. Well, let's see, 30 times 30, that would be 9%. I got a 9% increase because there's no ceiling on it. Let's say it went down 30. Well, I got a floor of zero. I don't lose anything. So that's how an S&P with a cap and a participation rate might work. So the floors and caps, we've explained that. The floor of zero, you can't lose on that, but you could have a cap, which is the maximum amount that you could make, or you could go with a participation rate, which is applied to an index to calculate your earnings. 
Next one I want to talk about is the spread. What is the spread? Yeah, so sometimes you have a participation rate. Let's say that there's some particular kind of index, and they call it the XYZ index, and it's a blend of different things. And I might have a choice. I could say, well, I can have 80% of that index as a participation rate, or I can have 100% of the index minus a spread, and that spread will be like a percentage, let's say 2%. So I can either get uh, 80% of the positive of it, or I can get 100% minus 2. So it's just, there, there are different ways to get to the same place, kind of, sort of. There, you know, depending on how that index did in a given year, uh, you might be better off taking one versus the other. If it was way up, I'd rather have a spread. I'll, I'll give you two back because I was way up. Uh, if it wasn't way up, I'd rather have participation rate and get most of, of the gain that I did get. So there's a, there are a lot of things to consider when you when it comes to annuity crediting options here. Are these options that you choose with every annuity, or does each annuity have its own particular crediting strategy? Every annuity has its own particular crediting strategy. And even an annuity, you know, sometimes I, I like an annuity, and, and uh, every year, I, you know, every year usually you get to choose. And that's why it's important to go through this. You go, well, I've already had, got an annuity. I already picked. Well, every year you can change that. And you can even change it to multiple strategies. That's another thing that's interesting. Well, I picked the S&P 500 with a ceiling, but the S&P's been doing great. I wish I'd picked participation rate for some of it. Well, you can. You could say, well, I want a third of it in the participation rate, a third with a ceiling, a third with a spread, whatever. You, you, can, you can mix and match. But every uh, even but as mentioning, even annuities that have been out for a while, sometimes uh, I'll say, well, why don't we go to this other uh, method? And they say, well, they, they closed that one down and they added these other two. I'm like, oh, gosh, now i got to learn two more. And so, yeah, so it, it, there's a little uh, work to uh, keeping up on these uh, annual crediting options. Brian, is your return measured annually, biannually? How is it measured? Well, that's a great question because a lot of people go, well, well how, how can I watch the daily returns? It's like, well, you really can't. Well, you, you can compute it on your own. But most of them are annual uh, point-to-point periods. So let's say that you bought it on February 1st. We'd look at January 31st the next year to measure the change. Uh, so if it's the S&P, we measure the change in the S&P and then apply the floors or caps or participation rates or whatever uh, at that point in time. It doesn't really matter what happened during the year. It's one year point to point. Some indexes are two years point to point, and they might give you a higher payout. However, uh, if you have a volatile market, you're probably better with the one year because on the one year, you might have a one big up year and one big down year you would have a a gain in the one year that you would keep. The next year you have a down year, uh, you you have a floor of zero, so you kept the first year gain. Had you had a two-year index, even though your participation rate might be higher, if you have an up and a down and you're back to start, well, you get a higher participation rate of nothing. And so you have to be careful. Uh, Sometimes we blend the one- and two-year participation rates. Brian, I'm going to shoot for the moon here a little bit. Are there annuities that are uncapped, meaning that they do not have any ceiling but still have a floor of zero? Yeah, I I tend to like uh, uncapped annuity crediting options simply because we've had some really crazy years. And because they're already taking the floor out, I always tease about this because uh, the annuity... uh, uh, insurance companies will come at me and they'll say, hey, this is a great one because we've taken the, the risk out of the index. And I, I don't want you to take the risk out of the index. 
I want the triple inverse Eastern European small cap semiconductor index Mm -hmm. because you've already taken the the downside out with the floor zero. I want something with max potential upside. Whether it hits it or not, I know every once in a while it may. And so I want an aggressive index with an uncapped uh, payout so that I could be in a position every once in a while to have a a super-sized return relative to a real conservative fixed or or other index. So that's what I, I... particularly like. You don't have as many uh, average years, but once in a while you have a really good year if you have uh, the proper uncapped indexes. Brian, there's something called a proprietary index, which uh, basically asks, are there some common index strategies that these insurance companies use? Yeah, there is. And some of them are are proprietary where they've invented it themselves and they say, okay, we back-tested this and it's done that. Be real careful about back-testing. So here's one of the tricks that I'm going to expose right now that people that sell annuities will show you an illustration. They say, look at what it's done the last 10 years, and this is what I'm going to project for you. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. We just went through the best 10 years of my lifetime as far as investing. I don't know that that's going to repeat itself. So if I'm looking at some uh, fixed index annuity and they're projecting 6 7 8% a year return compounded with floors of zero, no, I don't know that that's going to happen. Maybe it will. Maybe we'll have a 25-year run here and we're just in the middle of it. I don't know. But I'm going to say I would want to water down my expectations some. And so be careful when you're looking at illustration that they that may not be what ends up happening for yours because companies can, you know, hey, look in the rearview mirror what this thing did. Well, yeah, but you tied that to the bond index, which had a great run, but now that runs over. So why do I think that's going to continue? So I don't expect anybody listening to be able to analyze proprietary indexes the way that we can at Madrona. Just understand that uh, be careful about what you're being told by anybody trying to sell you uh, a fixed index annuity that may not be pointing these things out. Brian, if our listeners are like me, I really learn best by example. So let's take our favorite example, our fellow Joe here. Let's say he had two annuities that are tied to the S&P 500. Yeah, and you might have one that, as I mentioned before, that had a, a ceiling, the other participation rate. Well, if in the first year the S&P 500 gained, say, 10%, and year two it lost uh, 20%, and year three it gained 30%, well, the, the first annuity, the one with a cap of, say, 5%, you'd have a 5, a 0, and a 5. Whereas the other one would have earned 3 in the first year because they have a participation rate, 0 in the last year, just like the other person, and 9% in the third year. So, you know, some of these indexes, you think, gosh, there must be huge difference in the outcome, difference in the outcome of them. What's interestingly enough, they may not always do it in the same year, but over time, they tend to be in a general range on average. That has been what I what I have come up with. And so that's another thing to consider. But you mentioned proprietary indexes. What are they? Uh, there are certain companies that come out with them. Insurance companies will use those indexes and they'll apply different things. I think on purpose, insurance companies make this a lot more complicated <laughs> than it needs to be, honestly. I sell fixed index annuities when they're appropriate, whether it's for a safe accumulation of something that's designed to be a CD 
or it's for lifetime cash flow. I love them uh, when it's appropriate to act as a pension-like uh, investment that can pay you uh, maybe increasing lifetime cash flow. I think that's, you know, who doesn't want that? So there are lots of opportunities to use them, but not everything's perfect. If they had some simpler indexes, mm-hmm. I would be happy. I could explain those to my clients. I can't explain a lot of these indexes without uh, spending hour after hour trying to explain it. And what what is it going to do in the future? Uh, We don't know exactly. I can give you kind of a range of expectations, but that's about it. Well, there are hundreds of different types of annuities out there, and it takes someone like you to really drill down on the best ones and analyze these crediting strategies. If you have questions about annuities, whether or not they are appropriate for you and your portfolio, contact uh, Madrona Financial Services, 844-MADRONA, or you can ask your questions online at madronafinancial.com. Use that number and that website to get your complimentary, no-cost, no-obligation financial review. 844-MADRONA or madronafinancial.com. Out of time for this week, Brian. Thank you for your time. Thank our listeners for joining us, too. For Brian Evans, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great day in this great part of the country that we live in. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Growing Your Wealth. No statements made during the Growing Your Wealth radio show shall constitute tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own legal or tax professional on your individual information. Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services is licensed to offer investment advisory services through Madrona Financial Services, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Insurance products are offered through Madrona Insurance Services, LLC, a licensed insurance agency and an affiliate of Madrona Financial Services. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investors cannot invest directly into indexes. No investment strategy, including asset allocation or diversification, guarantees a profit or guarantees the avoidance of loss. Financial planning is an important tool that does not guarantee specific outcomes.